fossil fuels, global warming, and the dilemmas of rapid natural resource exploitation. So now we have, we have, a, we have a situation in Canada where our government has taken the position that, that the future of the Canadian economy is going to be wrapped around the extraction of bitumen from Alberta tar sands. We're going to ship it to China because we're finding that, in fact, the U.S. has got a lot of this too. And, and come hell or high water, this is what we're going to do. History and the Alberta tar sands. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 38 of Nature's Past, the eighth and final part of our special series, Histories of Canadian Environmental Issues. Welcome back, listeners, to the final episode of our special series, Histories of Canadian Environmental Issues, and we are joined, as usual, for one last time with our assistant producers, Andrew Watson and Stacey Nation-Knapper. Hello. So, we are dealing with the final environmental issue, which is arguably the most important or most substantial environmental issue facing Canadians today, and arguably the most important topic in Canadian environmental history, the tar sands. So, to begin, let's give our listeners a little sense of what the tar sands are. Well, it's an area north, uh, north of Edmonton in Alberta, apparently the size of Florida, which over the last uh, 15 or 20 years has become a, a site of the most extraordinary resource development in Canadian history. Right. This is the largest industrial resource project in Canadian history, northeast of Edmonton in the Athabasca district of Alberta. And it's a territory that is just enormous in size, about the size of Florida in terms of surface area. And it's an interesting geological area for for um, for the tar sands. It's uh, it's 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 important to keep in mind that this is this is not oil sands. That this is tar sands, and that it's decidedly a different substance in the sands of, of Alberta than what we would think of as conventional oil that comes out of underwater wells. So this is confusing, I think, to listeners. Right? We hear the term oil sands and tar sands. What do these things mean? Well, tar sands, um, in the case of Alberta, are uh, this resource that's that's um, being utilized. That's a mixture of bitumen and um, and it's within it's in the dirt, and it has to be in order to be extracted for use as a petroleum product. It needs to be separated. The bitumen needs to be separated from um, the other. Um, elements that it's it's with in the dirt but then it also has to be combined with other forms of um of petroleum other kinds of crude oil to be used as it is currently being marketed and used so the term oil sands and tar sands gets applied to what's effectively the same thing which is a resource called bitumen which is to paint a picture for listeners is kind of a uh, an oily mud, a very thick, oily, tar-like mud, which is where the term tar sands comes from. But when heat is applied to it and gas distillates are infused into it, it can be processed into a form of synthetic crude oil, which can be used for a variety of purposes, everything from aircraft, flight of uh, human flight to automobiles. Um, but it's an intense industrial process that requires significant energy inputs. And how does bitumen taken out of the earth on a huge industrial scale basically we're talking machinery here the sizes of uh, multi-store houses just hauling out the dirt in huge quantities 
which is then shipped off to uh, to uh, sort of a crude refining process that, as as Stacy says, uh, boils it or burns it at a really high temperature, so that it separates out the the the, the sand matter from what is basically the the, the tar. So substance. when we're imagining conventional oil extraction, we're thinking about oil derricks and nodding donkeys and gushers. This is not that kind of oil extraction. This is mining, no. right? This is digging dirt out of the earth. Um, uh, so this is a different kind of oil industry than perhaps we might conventionally uh, think of when we think of oil production. And it also has an, a different kind of output in the end. So um, the the dirt and the, the kind of sludge is dug up, it's separated out, and um, the oil-like substance is then uh, mixed with, I think, 19 or 20 other kinds of chemicals to create a usable petroleum product. But then that's not the only thing that kind of comes off of this process. Then there are what are called tailings. So the other... Um, the other products of the process that are not usable. So and this they, is like the waste product. Yes, the Everything waste product. that isn't usable hydrocarbon. Right, right. And um, they're also um, contaminated with other kinds of heavy metals. And um, these byproducts are then dumped in areas outside of where this, this mining occurs. And currently, I think the, um, the size of this waste dump is estimated at about 70 square miles. And these and are that's referred just to the as the tailing ponds, that's right? right? They're mixed with water and essentially put in enormous lakes of yes. mining waste. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to, con- to keep in mind how much more uh, fresh water is required to, to yes. process mm-hmm. tar sands than pump out of an oil well. So there's a whole host of environmental issues then associated with tar sands extraction from the actual point of extraction to, of course, its point of consumption and the contribution that the uh, consumption of oil and synthetic oil produced from tar sands makes toward global warming, which was the first issue we dealt with on this series. But there are also political and social ramifications for this major industrial project. Thomas Homer Dixon recently published uh, an op-ed in the New York Times that claimed that Canada is a petro-state. What did, what did he mean by that? Well, increasingly, the, uh, the economy of, of Canada uh, is becoming dependent, reliant on the success and the, the, the market share of Canadian bitumen oil mm. in the in the the global trade of um, petroleum commodities, and so that if if Canada's uh, local economy, the tar sands, is doing really well and and the production is up, and uh, buyers are getting access to uh, tar sands oil, then the Canadian dollar does does a lot better, and therefore a lot of um, sort of. Uh, Canadian economic activity and Canadian political uh, changes uh, are related to what happens in the tar sands. Right, so there's an argument that the Canadian dollar has been influenced by the value of oil as a commodity and that the dollar has become stronger relative to the U.S. dollar, but also fluctuates with the price of oil. Yeah, absolutely. So not um, not only is the Albertan government um, and the Al- Albertan um, provincial budget greatly affected by oil um, oil or the tar sands sharing revenues that they receive from that industry in their in their province but the larger Canadian economy is also affected and there was just a Wall Street Journal blog about how um, declining revenues from oil sand tar sands extraction are then dragging down Canadian GDP and so this is really reflecting how mm. the the um, tar sands industry 
is tied um, more and more greatly with the overall Canadian economy. And this might be difficult to see if you just look at the Canadian GT GDP, right? Tar sands may only account for a small percentage of Canadian GDP. But if you take the province of Alberta as an example in terms of the revenue that the province takes in from all different sources of revenue, from fees to income taxes uh, to natural resource royalties, in the 2011-2012 budget for the province of Alberta, 28% of the provincial budget came from non-renewable mining resources. It's primarily bitumen. Projections for the 2012-2013 budget are at 19%. So we're looking at almost a 10% drop in the provincial budget as a result of the decline of the value of bitumen. So here the province of Alberta now is engaged in massive austerity cutbacks to try and make up this nearly 10% loss of revenue as a result of a decline in the value of a natural resource product. So that's the kind of economic connection there is between the resource um, and the provincial economy, at least in the case of Alberta. But the allegation now is this is having reverberations beyond just the province of Alberta, that the politics of oil in Canada are starting to influence federal politics. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Particularly, and uh, in the Homer Dixon article, he's mentioning some of the uh, effects on Canadian scientists who work for the government, who've been um, told not to not to speak publicly about um, tar sands activities without approval from their supervisors and without government approval, and um, a, a lot of the closings of of scientific research facilities in Canada that's also linked to, directly to, um, resource extraction companies. Sure, and, and just, just uh, this past uh, December, December 2012, the, uh, and the Energy Framework Initiative, which is a, a collection of different uh, the petroleum producers, Natural Gas Association, uh, Canadian Energy Pipeline Association, and so forth, they uh, went went to the lengths of actually writing a letter to uh, Joe Oliver and uh, and Peter Kent, the uh, ministers of the federal government, to request some regulatory changes to uh, several specifically mentioned um, pieces of federal legislation that, in in, in their words, would uh, would sort of replace some outdated legislation with stuff a little bit more conducive to uh, resource development for the petrochemical industry. And this industries. ties back to our discussion about fisheries and the changes to the Fisheries Act that were passed last summer in the Omnibus Budget Bill, which eliminated a lot of the uh, environmental regulations within the Fisheries Act that were seen as prohibitions to pipeline construction in British Columbia, uh, specifically with the proposal for the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Well... Tar sands is a huge issue, um, and it's one I think environmental historians probably need to engage with even more than they have already. Uh, so on this episode, we're going to be speaking with a climatologist from the University of Victoria, Andrew Weaver, and we'll be hearing from a panel of specialists who uh, presented some of their work on Canadian tar sands development at the recent annual meeting of the American Society for Environmental History in Toronto on our final episode of the special series. My name is Andrew Weaver. I'm a Lansdowne Professor and Canada Research Chair in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dr. Weaver. Um, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about uh, something you point out in your 2008 book, Keeping Our Cool, Canada in a Warming World, um, in which you, uh, in, at the beginning of the book, you point out that anthropogenic or human-induced global warming isn't a recent scientific phenomenon. Um, can you explain for listeners what some of the most significant consequences of uh, global warming uh, that's been induced by humans for Canadians have been in the past hundred years or so? What have we already well, experienced? 
Sure. Well, first of all, the science itself has, isn't something that was, 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 was recently understood, too. Of course, the science goes back to early work of French mathematicians, Swedish uh, chemists. And even in 1936, a fellow called Guy Callender from the UK was the first to actually make multi-century predictions of what would happen as a consequence of human emissions of, of, of carbon dioxide. So the science has been going around for a long time. In terms of Canada, um, when you look, um, you know, Canada's been warming, as, as has uh, much of the world, over the last 120, uh, 30 years or so since the Industrial Revolution. So it's really been since humans have, have started to have a large impact on the environment that we started to see the changes associated with it. And those impacts are twofold. One is the changing land surface. I mean, the humans have had an effect on both local and global climate through, you know, the widespread deforestation of areas for agriculture and pastures. Mm -hmm. And secondly, through the actual change in the composition of the atmosphere by using it as a essentially an unregulated dumping ground. So in terms of the consequences of this, we're really beginning to now, only now, being able to say, so, so in the last 30 years or so, being able to detect the, the signature of human-induced global warming above the background of natural variability. That is, while, while warming's been going on for, for quite some time in Canada, the, it's only now that we are now beyond anything that could be explained by any form of natural variability. And you're seeing it all around us now. You're seeing it in terms of extreme precipitation. Mm -hmm. You're seeing it in terms of the dramatic melting of ice and, 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 and frozen uh, soils in the northern Canada. You're seeing it in terms of increased forest fires. You're seeing it in terms of increased intensity of storms. You're seeing it in terms of increased drought in the summer. And you're seeing it in, you know, most visually and in your face in things like Sandy, which recently happened, whereby where you have this combination of extraordinarily warm temperatures in the Atlantic feeding in hurricanes, um, uh, uh, allowing for more intense hurricanes. Also, with the sea ice melting so much in the Arctic, you're now having more blocking events in the North Atlantic, which allow allow these storms to steer slightly differently. And we've had about a foot of sea level rise in New York over the last century. So you mm -hmm. have this, this kind of cooked ingredients together and, and you get you get what you get. And do you think these gradual changes over time are difficult for people to perceive because climate uh, and climate analysis is a, an analysis of statistics. It's an analysis of, of broad changes over a long period of time. That is difficult for people to see a foot of sea level rise if it doesn't happen suddenly. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's actually been a lot of research done in that area. What, what's happened, of course, is public opinion polls in the U.S. predominantly is where they've been done, have, have looked at U.S. Um, belief systems in terms of the actual existence of warming, of warming Earth. And they found that, you know, if they looked uh, two years ago, it was, I forget the exact number, it was something of, uh, of the order of 50-something 50, 50 percent of Americans believed there was solid evidence for for global warming. And then mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, after a season of dramatic tornadoes where there was floods in the north and, 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 and drought in Texas, the percentage of Americans who believed it went way up. And when they further explored why, it was because Americans were feeling experiences, we experienced extreme weather events and then attributed those to evidence for global warming. So that's, that's the problem, is trying to convey the difference between Weather and climate, of course, weather is what mm -hmm. is outside, and, cl and climate is the likelihood of occurrence of that particular weather event outside. That's a difficult concept to communicate. And, 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 and so you're, you're absolutely, absolutely correct, is that, is that you know, people look for evidence in terms of their individual experiences, and, and when they see something, they, they, they will either attribute that or not to global warming. Another compounding thing, which was one of my favorite examples I give, is that 
we've often heard when I was young the snow <laughs> the snow a huge amount. But what what's really interesting about that is when you're young, you're probably three feet tall as well. Right. So your so your perception of deep snow would be somewhat different as well. Right, right. And I guess for historians, too, from time to time we come across images of people skating on bodies of water, which in the present uh, no longer freeze uh, to such right. a thickness that you can skate on them. That, that's true. And even in, the, the, well, in Victoria, where I am, we, we can't go winter skating um, on, on some of the lakes that used to have pictures back at the turn of the, turn of the previous century uh, mm-hmm. showing all the time people going on skating on. So what have been the, the principal causes of anthropogenic global warming? And when did human activity begin to affect this change? So it, it's the, we've got a very clear understanding of this. The single most important factor for the warming that's occurred in the last 120 years is the combustion of fossil fuels and the release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is far and above anything that the natural system can actually absorb. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two is the production of methane, mm-hmm. which comes through through um, um, uh, you know, natural gas uh, losses through. Uh, fermentation processes, mm-hmm. rice patties, etc. And the third one is nitrous oxide, which comes from things like natural fertilizers and, and, and things like that too. There's also uh, there's other greenhouse gases uh, as well, but those are the three biggies that, that contribute the most. And this really has started since the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the largest, um, I mean, and, and, but the acceleration has been dramatic in the last 15 years, particularly now that we have a world where there is no longer one dominant economy, there's several, and with the emergence of China and India as, as huge, massive new economies and getting their energy from coal, we're seeing a dramatic increase in emissions in recent years. Right, and listeners can see just in uh, some of the reports published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that kind of spike toward the end of the timeline of the 20th century in terms of warming phenomenon globally. Correct. So... Uh, I guess to talk a little bit about the IPCC, how, in your experience, has the relationship between climate science and news media changed since the formation of the IPCC in 1988? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and for, the, for your listeners, I've actually been involved in the IPCC as a lead author since the, the second assessment report. The first assessment report appeared in 1990, two years after the formation. The second one appeared in 1995. So in 1995, 2001, 2007, I was uh, a lead author in, 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 in each of those, and, and in the one that's going to appear in 2013, I'm also a lead author. So, so I have a little bit um, of experience with looking at how this has evolved with time. Back in the, back in the early 1990s, um, it, it's, it was you know, the whole value of science. This is before the Internet, for example, mm-hmm. it was, or the widespread public uh, adoption of the Internet. The science was, was perceived as, as, as uh, very influential in public policy. And we had at the time, uh, after the first um, report, you're having um, uh, very uh, progressive policies being put forth in terms of um, Canadian policy under uh, Brian Mulroney in in England. It was Margaret Thatcher, I think with George Bush Sr. They're starting to talk about the need to transform energy systems uh, towards renewables, the need to actually uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So so there was a lot of talk. Uh, There was a lot of... um, money put in at that time to doing things like research to mm-hmm. start to look at um, you know understanding the problem better trying to to um, get a handle on what can be done better uh, in the UK for example the Hadley Center was sent up in Canada the Canadian Green Plan was was put in place and and the media was 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 essentially conveying you know acting as a conduit between the public and the, and and the policy and the science in terms of providing information and and well, but what's happened, of course, with, as time goes on, as 
the problem became more and more certain in the scientific community. It was a, it, it within the role of the media has, has ironically made it more and more uncertain in the plot. Uh, in the eyes of the public hmm. and the reason why there's a number of reasons why first off um, there's the of course the you know in, in aspects of the media in the business of, of, of selling stories and controversy likes sells so you know media always goes around trying to find a controversy to make a story out of it even if that one doesn't exist but number the main the main one of course is the journalism ascription to the ethical norm of trying to perceive being perceived as, as balanced in the reporting. So hmm. what you would find is you do a story on the climate science, you do a story on the IPCC and what it's saying, and rather than doing the story on the science, you do you then go and seek a diversity of views and you you, you try to find some scientists who say it's because of natural cycles. Mm -hmm. You prevent prevent present the science and you give some quotes. And, and the problem with that is that, that that's good journalism when you do policy because you have to give the, the, the reader uh, a, a, a sense of what the issues are of that policy. Mm -hmm. But with science, it's kind of, it doesn't work that way. If you drop a ball, it falls. You don't actually go and get a scientist to say it doesn't fall and another one say it does. It's so, so that created um, a, a misrepresentation of uncertainty in the public. And then, you know, as, it, as the science became extremely certain, uh, you know, we moved to 2009 now. This is when we start to get manufactured controversy. We have the, we have the Internet mm -hmm. now, you know, in its infancy in the, in the mid-2000s, where, whereby, you know, anybody with, a, with an armchair and, a, and an Internet connection in, in their basement can put up a blog and call it science. And now you feed that into the human natural, uh, uh, natural um, desire to seek information that validates pre-existing belief systems. And you start to get enhanced disbelief within the climate system, mm -hmm. within the general public. But where we are today, of course, is that, um, you know, it, it doesn't take long before the public, you know, re recognizes that, you know, they've had the wool pulled over their eyes. They look around them. They see the extreme precipitation events all around the world. They see the droughts. They see Saudi. They see things like that. They're beginning to recognize that, you know, this is happening. That's interesting. It's an extraordinary amount of change in a period of just over 20 years since it the is. IPCC was formed, the relationship between media and uh, natural sciences. Um to shift gears a little bit uh, specifically to Canada, what, what role has the exploitation of the bitumen resources of the Athabasca region in northern Alberta played in this history of global warming? Yeah, this is, you know, back in, it's, it, again, this is, this is another interesting um, case, is that uh, it, it, the, the role has changed slightly um, as, the, as the governing parties have also changed. Mm -hmm. So back under the, in the Christian era, the uh, predominant um, um, oppositions, the, the uh, reformed alliance parties back, back in the day, within the elements of that party were strong glo I call global warming you know, deniers, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. who would spend, you know, send out notes and argue that global warming wasn't happening, et cetera, et cetera, bring in people to speak who would ever listen about why the science is wrong, blah, blah, blah. But the, under the, the Christian government, they, were, they, 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 they didn't really do much. Mm -hmm. um, but they were not. They were not as um, their economic plan seemed not at the time to be very much focused on the only economy for Canada in the years ahead is extraction of bitumen from Alberta tar sands. Um, that changed as we moved towards the the um, minority and now majority government of, of of Harper, where it's very clear now we 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 have a we have a, 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 a an almost we have I mean I'm, I, I'm almost. List, look in disbelief what's going on in Ottawa. We have a government that, that stands up and then claims that global warming is one of the defining issues of our time and that Canada is going to show leadership, etc. Mm -hmm. Does absolutely nothing, has done absolutely nothing, and then has the audacity to essentially label those who are concerned about it as, as somehow 
anti-Canadian or eco-terrorists that start targeting NGOs for, for, for their sources of money while not going after the same lobby groups who are actually trying to promote, you know, bitumen at all costs. Uh, so now we have, we, have a, we have a situation in Canada where our government has taken the position that, that the future of the Canadian economy is going to be wrapped around the extraction of bitumen from Alberta tar sands, and we're going to ship it to China because we're finding that, in fact, the U.S. has got a lot of this too, and, and come hell or high water, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to ram pipelines through First Nations land, we're going to do it, whether British Columbians want it or not, we're not going to engage Canadians, and, and this is our plan. So this is, I mean, this is, so the, it's, it's very, it's, it's, what can I say? It's 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 not what most Canadians believe is a Canadian thing to do. The Canadian thing to do is to compromise, be stewards of goodwill, to diversify, mm-hmm. and, and we are really putting all our eggs in one basket. And the sad thing about this is the rest of the world is beginning to move away. We look at Europe, we look mm-hmm. at some places, the innovation happening in China, because they have to. They can't meet the energy demand. Innovation is happening in the U.S., and Canada is not moving down the direction we're going to be left behind because we're going to be built, putting an economy, but taking a product and shipping it and having nobody want it. So that's not good business, right? You, you, you sell it's, it's supply and demand. I mean, we're, 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 people are not wanting our product. They, they want it in China, sure, mm-hmm. but people in British Columbia don't want the pipelines coming across to ship it to China. So you've got a problem here. So... If we think about these two policies in terms of the exploitation of tar sands resources from Alberta and at least a superficial interest in mitigating global warming, can Canadians pursue the exploitation of this resource and simultaneously mitigate the effects of global warming? Well, the beauty of, of, of oil is it, it's got so many diverse, diversified uses. Only one of them is burning it. So, I, I, I mean, there's the whole petrochemical industry, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which as well. So I, I suspect that, that over time, the um, aspects of the Alberta bitumen um, uh, resource will be exploited. Uh, it'll be done so, it can be done so in much more environmentally friendly ways. It is utterly inconsistent with Canada's commitment to its international obligations to actually take it out at the rate it's taking out, using the means and methods it's taking out, you, you know, consuming natural gas, vast quantities of it, to, to extract bitumen, to transport it you know, halfway across the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, Canada cannot get a handle on its emissions to, if, if, uh, and its emissions reduction targets it's set if it's going to do this. So it's impossible for Canada to meet its targets unless it gets a handle on what it's doing in Alberta tar sands. In terms of the overall uh, resource globally, of course, the tar sands are, are one of many resources. You know, the, the biggest bang for the buck globally, of course, is we have to get, we have to move away. And in Canada, we should have, we should be, we should be shutting down our coal-fired electricity plants as they are doing in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is the kind of thing we could be doing to deal with this problem um, in, in, from a Canadian context. And, Do- and, and Dr. Weaver, I want to thank you for uh, providing us with some historical perspective on global warming um, in and of itself. Uh, Andrew Weaver is the author of uh, Keeping Our Cool Canada in a Warming World, along with many, many other publications, some of which we will uh, link to on our website, and the author, or uh, uh, one of the lead authors on a forthcoming IPCC report in 2013. Is that right? That's correct. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Weaver. Thank you ever so much for having me. Thank you very much, John, and thank you everyone for coming this evening. It's my great pleasure and honor both to introduce
introduce the speakers for this interesting panel this evening, and to add, by way of an introductory context, a few remarks about our focus on the fossil fuel dilemma. I will introduce the speakers very briefly. Uh, we do have a packed evening. Uh, the first three of the speakers, including myself, will speak for something in the order of 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, Warren Carrier, who will follow the two of us, uh, the three of us will talk for 20 to 25 minutes, and we then hope for a lively period of discussion at the end of the presentations. So, keeping the introductions brief in order to move us forward, let me just say that Emory Sedman, who's our first uh, speaker, holds Canada Research Chair in Cultural Studies and is a professor of English, Film Studies, and Sociology at the University of Alberta. Uh, he also leads there the Petrocultures Research Cluster, which aims to support, produce, and distribute research related to the social, cultural aspects of oil and energy in Canada and the world today. His talk is called Oil and as Philosophy, and in this he will share with us some of his work on the epistemologies of energy and oil, the ways in which we understand oil as both problem and possibility, and the ways in which we imagine the social and political frameworks within which we live. Sarah Darrow is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology, also at the University of Alberta. She has led a major research project studying formations and limits of community within the broader political economy of the northern Alberta oil sands. Her paper is called Making Environmental History, Governing Men and Things in the Oil Sands. It draws on her fieldwork in Fort McMurray to consider two intertwined narratives of environmental history. One of the tar sands as an industrial relic, whose environmental degradation is continually positioned in the past, and the other of the oil sands as giving birth to a new future of environmental excellence. Finally, Warren Carrier is an associate professor in the Department of English and director of the Center for Creative Writing and Oral Culture at the University of Manitoba, where he also holds a Canada research chair. He is a writer and documentary filmmaker, in addition to his roles as professor of English and narrative. He's well known in Canada for his pioneering 2002 memoir, Lake of the Prairies, which examines the psychology and politics of racial identification and discrimination in the northern Saskatchewan community of Meadow Lake. His films, Overburden and Land of Oil and Water, are both about the human rights of indigenous people who are facing environmental, economic, and cultural devastation as a result of oil sands development <coughs> in northern Alberta and Saskatchewan. His talk with Kayachak, Pestowin, and the biopolitics of Tar looks at some indigenous responses to petroleum development from the Pelican Portage blowout of 1897 to the contemporary period. His main focus, however, is on traditional Cree ideas about the relationship between humans and the natural world. Clearly, this is a group of talks that take a variety of perspectives on the Alberta oil sands. 
But just to provide you with some context for what is to follow and perhaps to suggest some of the reasons why we chose this for the plenary at this meeting in Toronto, uh, please spare me the time for a few introductory remarks by way of beginning. The Alberta oil, tar, bitumen sands are front of mind for many Canadians today. We are bombarded with expensively produced advertisements declaring their extraction benign, their benefits enormous, and the remediation of such environmental damage as there may be perfectly feasible and well underway. Yet opposition abounds, especially focused for the moment on the construction of pipelines to Texas and the west and east coasts and the dangers of supertanker traffic in the waters of British Columbia. Meanwhile, fewer people seem to worry as much about the larger fossil fuel dilemma posed by the drive to exploit this and other carbon fuels. In a recent talk, I invoked the tale of Hansel and Gretel to suggest that the oil sands were our candy house in the forest, our candy house in the boreal forest, seemingly and in the short term offering shelter and comfort to the cold and hungry protagonists of the story, but threatening their doom ere long. Whether we will be as quick and as clever as Gretel and succeed in pitching the carbon witch into her oven before we're all burned is perhaps the great question of our time. Our hope is that this session will throw light on the dilemma even as it provokes thought and lively discussion. Before we get to the main speakers who will provoke that discussion, I hope, perhaps I can drop a few pebbles, Hansel-like, as reference points or historical markers for what is to follow. Although they have become a focus of public concern only recently, the viscous mix of clay, sand, water, and bitumen that we call the oil or tar sands was long known to indigenous people. And English and Scottish explorers encountered it and remarked on it in the 18th century. Surveyors with the Geological Survey of Canada took an interest in the resource late in the 19th century, and the first successful, unsuccessful attempts to drill for oil occurred, as Warren Carrier will tell us a little later, in the 1890s. By 1913, researchers realized that there was no pool of liquid oil here. Political skirmishes and desultory efforts to tap the oil sands followed, but exploitation was uneconomical until the Second World War. In 1941, a company called Abersands processed 19,000 tons of oil sands to produce 17,000 barrels of bitumen. A fire, a costly rebuild, and another catastrophic fire in 1945 put an end to its operations. Renewed interest in the resource in the 1950s led the Richfield Oil Corporation to an innovative proposal known as Project Cauldron. You see, Hansel and Gretel do have some relevance to this story. <laughs> Put simply, this 1958 plan, which received serious consideration by all levels of government and approval from several regulatory bodies, called for the underground detonation of a nine kiloton nuclear explosion to liquefy the bitumen and create a proper oil field. 
A decade later, the Great Canadian Oil Sands Operation, an offshoot of Sun Oil, began production without nuclear assistance, fortunately, but technical difficulties undermined profitability for several years. Then political battles between federal and Alberta governments, volatile world oil prices, and severe economic turbulence in the 1970s and 1980s combined to constrain exploitation of the tar sands. In 1995, however, the report of a federal government national oil sands task force helped establish a new investment climate by pointing to the enormity of the reserves, now considered second only to the oil fields of Saudi Arabia, the technological and commercial viability of their development, and the huge macroeconomic benefits that would flow from this development. The results have been astonishing. Annual capital investment in the oil sands exceeded $1 billion in 1996. It reached $4.2 billion by 2000 and averaged over $16 billion a year between 2006 and 2008. Bitumen and synthetic crude sales, net of operating expenditures, royalties, and land acquisition, rose 1,650% to almost $23 billion in the decade before 2008. In 2011, Raw crude bitumen was flowing from the oil sands at the rate of 1.7 million barrels every day. The target for 2015 is 3 million a day. In the midst of this, the National Geographic characterized the oil sands as the most environmentally destructive project on Earth, and we've seen all manner of protests against the project from indigenous peoples and environmental groups. Even the most cursory review of this increasingly heated debate reveals the paradox that, this, that the forest fossil fuel dilemma presents. Depending on which side of the argument one listens to, and Sarah will show us that it's a more complex one than this binary simplification, it seems that we can't live with or without carboniferous capitalism. We North Americans, it has been said, are carbon slaveholders. The 25 barrels of oil per capita we consume each year do the work of approximately 200 humans. Take it, them, away, and our lives would be unthinkable, a point upon which Imre will elaborate in a minute. Keep burning this amount of oil, and we'll cross the threshold of the 2 degrees Celsius global temperature increase that will bring us to the various tipping points in natural systems. According to Malti Meinshausen of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Change, global carbon emissions for the first 50 years of this century would need to be less than 886 gigatons to give us an 80% chance of avoiding this two degrees threshold. In the next 50 years, less than 886 gigatons. Between 2000 and 2006, we released more than a quarter of this amount into the atmosphere. One of the neatest short analyses of the structural underpinnings of this dilemma that I know of comes from a graduate student in the Monk School of Global Affairs here at the University of Toronto. A political scientist and a student of Arctic sovereignty, Will Greaves has applied the insights of security studies to thinking about the oil sands. By asking deceptively simple questions, security for whom and from what, he finds that proponents of development 
frame their arguments in terms of energy security, a stable North American oil and gas supply, while opponents invoke arguments about environmental security at several scales from local impacts to global climate change. These frames and their referent objects are ultimately incompatible, yet each places great faith in technology's capacity to undercut the arguments of the other, the first by reducing harmful emissions, the second by replacing dependence on carbon fuels. So why should environmental historians be interested in all of this? First, I would say because we are citizens of the earth and our futures are at stake. Second, because the fundamentals of this intense debate are old ones. There are at least three implications to this that I would mention here. First, the manner in which this issue envelops us can help our scholarship by forcing us to think anew about the ways in which earlier environmental debates and protests were framed and resolved. Second, at base, these issues turn on the liberal or neoliberal orders that have shaped Western and global development for much of the last 200 years and raise important questions that have formed, I would mention in passing, important strands of Canadian scholarship about the relations between technology and society, about colonists and indigenous peoples, and about the values and vision that have helped to shape the world we live in. Third, if we're going to solve this dilemma, we will need all of the imaginative wit, historical knowledge, wisdom, and perspective we can muster. Each of the three papers that follow contributes to the storehouse of understanding that we will need to tackle this problem. But there is much more that rests in the environmental scholarship and commitment of those in this hall this evening, and we look forward to your sharing that with us. Thank you. Imre? This, this session is, has the tar sands or the oil sands in the title, and I must admit that I'm not going to be talking about the tar sands very much. Um, I do do work on the tar sands now, but what I want to talk about is how I got to that point of doing some, trying to understand something about the tar sands. I'm trained really in political philosophy and in cultural studies. And where I first started to think about um, oil had to do with, I, sorry, but I should stand near the mic, had to do with, um, well, some, some difficulties I started to have as somebody who was a left cultural critic and who felt it, uh, found myself really, really frustrated with the kinds of responses that the left, both academic left and the political left, was having about oil. It seemed to me that it kind of came down to just the left saying that we should just do without it. And I got increasingly frustrated with that as a response, given the fact that we have, our cities are built around oil. We have an enormous population on the earth that's getting bigger all the time, and that will peak out at about 10 billion people, and will likely need more and more oil, not less and less of it. Um, some of the um, regimes that the left, including myself, likes to, to uh, hold up as great regimes, as, as the kind of things that we might want to imitate in Canada, such as Norway, maybe Venezuela, those regimes are able to do the kinds of things they can do because of oil. So I started to become very, very frustrated about how we might think about, about oil, somebody on the left. And 
and I'm still interested in that question, but as I began to examine that question, I became more and more fascinated with, with understanding a bigger question, I think. And, and I started to learn from lots and lots of critics, lots of, including historians, about what I think we, we inhabit, which is a petroculture, a culture in which petrocarbons aren't just an incidental um, source of fuel, something that we can very, very easily replace by some other source of fuel, but rather that are shaped by oil in ways that we can't get past. So even if we were to come up with a new source of energy that would somehow replace oil all at once, we would still be inhabiting a petroculture in all kinds of other ways, in the form of our cities, in the way that we moved around goods, in how we organized labor. And it seemed to me that we had to start thinking about the ways in which oil built our societies that presently exist in a much, much more fundamental way. So that's what I became more and more interested in. And I guess it's kind of um, summed up by this uh, quote. I could have picked many, many others, but this quote by Jakob von Fisker, a physicist, who says, the increase in human wealth and well-being during the past few centuries is often attributed to such things as state initiatives, governmental systems, and economic policies. But the real and underlying cause has been a massive increase in energy consumption. Discovering and extracting fossil fuels requires little effort when resources are abundant before their depletion. It is this cheap surplus energy that has enabled classical industrial classical industrial, urban and economic development. And so I want to try to start to figure out what, what this meant for the kind of work that I do. And so the first, there's kind of three things I'd like to talk about. The first two are projects I've already done uh, to varying degrees. And the third, oil and as philosophy is one that I'm starting to embark on. And I'll try to go over these very quickly. So oil discourses, I, I became interested in the ways in which we narrativize oil to ourselves, both as problem and possibility. And I wanted to look at the fundamental ways that uh, kind of the categories we could give to these narratives as a way, I think, of trying to think about another narrative that escapes these. It, it's interesting to me that the, uh, the student that um, Graham mentions ca captures these same narratives, though in a little bit of a different frame than, than I, would, I would look at. So these were discussed in this article here. And I came up with three three narratives that I saw cutting across all kinds of discourses, academic discourses, governmental discourses, journalistic discourses, so on and so forth. The first one was strategic realism, which was this sense that uh, the main issue about oil was trying to secure it for one's own nation state and not really worrying about the bigger picture of what it meant for other nation states or what it meant for the environment. A second was this one that I think is an extraordinarily problematic one called techno-utopianism. I call it utopian because there's this sensibility about it that where our problems will really be addressed is in technology. And this is found in all kinds of statements, including by, by our own prime minister, but by scientists. The idea, this idea, and there's this kind of this philosophical core to it, actually, which is this idea that technology in the end will save us, as it always has in every single one of our other problems. And when I started to look at how that could operate or what that was referencing. I actually couldn't come up with a single other incident like this, that there would be this place where technology would come to the rescue and save us from ourselves, such that we wouldn't have to undergo a fundamental social, cultural, political transformation. The only example I could think of, and, and I love the fact that I'm in a room full of historians because they can tell me if I'm right or wrong. The only other example I could think of was the atomic bomb, and that has, I don't know what, who that us is that it's saved, and it, there's also lots of other repercussions to that. But there is this fantasy that as long as we put enough money into technology, it'll, it'll work itself out, and 
we don't really have to fundamentally worry about oil, its presence in our lives, or its perhaps soon to be absence, because technology will save us. And for those of us um, in this room, and I think a lot of people who do study the environment, we tend to fall into this category this, uh, that I call eco-apocalypse, which is that we kind of know all of, the, cat, all of the, the reality of the situation facing us with respect to our resource use, and we can name it, and we, can also, we also know that in some sense the, the enlightenment ideals that we live out all the time, that knowledge leads to action, are, are a fiction. That's just not how it operates. And so we have this sensibility that even though we can name the problem, um, we can't really do anything about it, and so what that means for us is kind of an apocalyptic environmentalism. Now, these three categories helping me to identify the kinds of, there, there are others, of course, that one can think about perhaps, but I would say that most of the discourses fall into these three categories, and this really helped me in my attempts to kind of develop some other way of thinking about, or pushing me to think of some other way of thinking about how I myself as a cultural critic might might examine oil. I, I, haven't, I don't have a fourth category worked out yet, though I've been trying to work on it. So um, another thing I did is this kind of, uh, or I've been trying to push really, really hard, is this use of energy in cultural analysis. Now, a long time ago, Bertolt Brecht said of a German play that nobody knows about anymore called Conjecture by Leo Lanya that petroleum resists the five-act form. He didn't think that aesthetics were able to properly name the importance of oil for our lives. And what I then kind of wanted to do in this special section of PMLA is I wanted to insist on, or what I, I asked a number of, of writers who looked at, at different moments in the history of literature to look at it and to frame it and to, to take energy as a possible mode of periodizing, uh, re-periodizing the history of literature and to see what might arise from it. So one of the other things I've been doing just in brief is trying to push the necessity of thinking about energy um, in relationship to cultural analysis, in relationship to all forms of analysis. And if one does that, I think one comes up with very, very different understandings of the texts that we have been normally looking at. So just to give you a, a quick sense of, of the types of, uh, of uh, contributions that my colleagues did, there was work on Shakespeare and Tallow, there was somebody that also did a work on The Tempest, another Shakespeare play as the origin of a, of a wood era. Um, what people tend to, to do when they began to look back at the literary texts that they always studied is that they were saturated with energy, that all the time people were talking about energy, that these critics were always looking at the types of limits and possibilities that different forms of energy meant for them, both socially but also culturally as well. And so one of the things that I've been trying to push in my own work now is trying to think about what it might mean to think about our own period of cultural production as a kind of an oil, an oil culture, an oil literature. But I don't want to spend too much time on that. I do want to end with this current work that I'm doing on oil and as philosophy. And um, what, I, what I'm basically trying to do is looking, look at, as, as part of a book project called On Empty, the first part of this project is going to be looking at uh, philosophy from Marx to Foucault and rethinking the, I guess I'm, I'm interested in, in the types of philosophy that, that are uh, or types of social theory that are making grand claims about the nature of society, about what shape, what forces shape them, 
how then we have to think about our understanding of those societies, what might emerge out of them. And what I want to do in this, in this uh, analysis is consider how these theories, how these philosophies might be very, very different if one introduced the importance of energy, the fundamental importance of energy into their analysis. So I have this quote from Marx here where Marx talks about nature as, as important as human labor from the critique of the Goethe program. Marx almost says this, such a thing, nowhere else in his work as far as I know. Um, nature doesn't appear in the kinds of philosophies that I'm talking about. Um, I'm going to, I'd like to look, there are some exceptions of people like Bataille, George Bataille or Heidegger who do look in some ways at the importance of energy, so I'm going to look at them as well. But I want to start with Marx, who makes large claims about the nature of the present, but doesn't talk about oil uh, or energy, even though it's very contemporaneous with him and seems that it would really reshape the types of ways in which he frames his own political problems and what might emerge afterward. We're talking, af and after all, about this hope and desire for a world without work, and that seems to require certain kinds of energy inputs that he never imagined because he thought they would be infinite. And I've, I've been really thinking recently about, about Foucault and his ideas of biopolitics, um, which are, ver are varied over the course of his life, but I'm particularly interested in why it suddenly became important for governments to imagine and analyze populations, to pay attention to demographics. And one of the things one has to think about immediately is why populations increased in the ways that they did. There are many, many people that would suggest it has to do with the appearance of cheap sources of energy, the appearance of forms of energy that were trans easily transportable, and which made it possible for populations to grow in ways in which suddenly it became important for governments to attend to them in a very, very different way. So this is a uh, quotation from uh, an anthropologist at um, Rice University who has a group of, uh, he also has a research cluster there called Cultures of Energy, and he is proposing the beginning of this form of analysis called energopolitics, which is trying to take the insights of Foucault about the nature of the changes in, in uh, power from the 18th century onward, but to, to insist on the importance of introducing energy into the analysis. So this is the kind of work I've been doing. Now, I guess one of the things that all of us that do this kind of work, and there's, I hope there's a growing number of us, um, are attentive to and worried about is uh, the kind of, I, to, sorry about the pun, but about this crude materialism that suddenly emerges with the insistence on thinking about energy in relationship to society and even to, to cultural uh, production, forms of cultural production, and also politics. But I don't think that we can engage in the forms of analysis such as Foucault's without taking this kind of work seriously. And what I would like to do, or what I'm planning to do over the next year or so, is kind of re-narrate, reorient the last 150 years selectively, 150 years of philosophy, of political philosophy, with an insistence on energy. What, what kinds of things are suddenly disabled? What other things are enabled if we think about it in a new way? And I'll leave it at that. Thanks very much. Um, thank you very much for the chance to be here uh, and to, to Graham for inviting me and for setting this up as well. Um, I have some of the same questions that Imri does, but I come to it as a, an ethnographer and a sociologist um, conducting research uh, in Fort McMurray, the urban service area. 
uh, to the Florida-sized area of northern Alberta, under which lie the Athabasca tar sands. I conducted my work mostly from 2007 to 2010, um, from the kind of chaotic height of the, the early 21st century boom um, to its downturn, or what some local people were calling a respite. Um, the city in that first century, the first part of the century had nearly tripled um, in size to uh, now it's uh, over 100,000 people. It's a highly global city of professionals and trade workers and service workers. 25% of the population are mobile workers um, from rural Alberta, from Toronto, from Beijing, from all over. It's important to note that Fort McMurray, where I do my research, that very name Fort McMurray refers in one and the same breath to the social geographic place and to the oil sands. And it is this relationship that drives how I do my work and how I think about uh, what's happening there. This relationship of economic and social, oil production and social reproduction are negotiated um, in this locale and how the kind of imaginaries and practices of community are negotiated within that context. Um, so with the invitation to speak here um, to all of you as environmental historians, which I am not, has pushed me to ask more directly um, where and how nature and environment figure into this complex of men and things that I'm looking at in Fort McMurray. Black uh, has shown in his study of Oil Creek in Pennsylvania how interest in taking care of the community waxed and waned with interest in protecting um, the creek. Uh, we have here, I think, in, in my own work, a somewhat different kind of calculus, where interest in social prosperity is tied to economic prosperity with nature playing a kind of mediating, discursive, important role. Obviously, it's not just discursive, it's also material, but these two things have to be considered together. Um, and so I hope to show that there are these two narratives of, narrative of environmental history at work. Um, one that situates current oil production as always already in an industrial past, and one that always orients it towards a green future of environmental excellence. Um, and these are sutured together um, um, within this context through managing the present, which requires various forms of labor. And I'm still working that part out, but I'll give you a teaser of that at the end, I hope. Okay. So given the time constraints, I'll only be able to kind of dance across the top of, of some of these things. But I do hope I provide enough that we can together think about how Fort McMurray is perhaps good to think with when it comes to the fossil fuel dilemma. If there is one dominant discourse in this place, it is um, of, of a future that ties the potential of the oil sands, potential being a word that's used over and over and over again, to the prosperity of communities in the region, the nation, and the planet. So how is this done? What are its fault lines? And how and where do particular you know, the productions of nature and labor figure into this vision? As uh, Imri mentioned, um, there's this kind of problem of thinking about uh, labor and, and nature and capital together uh, within Marxist thought. Coronel and others have reminded us that the way that nature has been, uh, the way that nature has been included in our understanding of capital-labor relations of accumulation and the production of surplus value. Others, such as Mitchell and Kafensis, have reminded us that labor has been included in the political economic study of the material production of oil. So they prompt us to ask what sorts of relations between people and land are created and what histories are valorized and erased uh, in this process. I forgot to show you that quickly. There we, there we are, Fort McMurray and the oil sands uh, and some, some pictures from uh, on the ground in Fort McMurray and up in the air. So 
Foucault's complex of men and things offers a way to think humans, capital, and nature together as a matter of governing. Narratives of environmental history, I argue, govern men and things in particular ways. They formulate and make common sense relations between people, technology, money, land, ecology, and progress or development. Asking after these relations in the productive and social reproductive heart of bitumen production, let alone the largest industrial mega program in the planet's history, as is so often proclaimed with awe, whether it's a critical awe or a kind of magical awe, um, speaks, I think, to the dilemmas, as Graham put it, of how we cannot live with or without oil, especially when that production is itself enfolded into the problem. The size and character of the oil sands brought to life in large aerial images, like the one that's on your program cover, um, foreground the intensification of ecological disaster in the practice of extraction itself, um, which is also a, a form that requires a lot of labor effort, uh, more so than conventional oil. This reality, these realities make, make raw all over again the question of the relationship between capital, labor, labor, and land. It was really in 2007 and 2008 that the moniker of dirty oil uh, really started to stick. Uh, both industry and the municipality, uh, and certainly the provincial and federal governments, although I won't speak to them so much here, have scrambled to respond. And their responses rely on these two versions of environmental history, uh, which in turn, I think, interpolate labor in different ways. So first to the kind of industry narrative, which I hope to give you a, a quick sense of. How does the industry narrative kind of uh, pull these two environmental history narratives out together? This is a, a version, um, the industry version is one of, of how these kind of things figure together. One is the history of figuring out the industrial processes and infrastructure for extracting bitumen, right? So this kind of history of the oil sands as one of trying to figure out how do we get this stuff out of the ground, right, With, from nature's hold on it, um, whether it's on the surface or in deeper pockets. Um, this is part of a kind of a longer history of the romance um, with the prospects of what the environment could yield, right, and its promises for economic development. But it's also a vision, um, uh, as I found in my interviews, of environmental labor. Um, this economy's kind of clunky industrial exterior, so evident in those kind of landscape um, de degradation images, hides, according to industry, the nascent environmental concerns that industry has worked on and has always worked on. As one company uh, executive put it to me, on the environmental side, there's a lot of attention in the last several years, obviously from the public. But I don't think what's appreciated is the companies have always paid attention to environmental issues. We've been researching tailings for 25 years, and we've been researching land reclamation for 30. So this is solidified in the present, as one industry rep put it to me, via regulation and monitoring, quote, in ways that other places aren't, in a very aren't doing so in a very professional way. This is Alberta, it's Canada. A not so veiled reference to ethical oil, right, in relation to those places that don't produce oil quite so ethically. The problem, as many saw it in industry, was that they got behind in telling this story, their story. Um, environmental, environmentalists got to it first, leaving them unable to tell the story of all that they are laboring to know and do about the environment, right, themselves. The desire to get this story out about a professional commitment to environmental knowledge production has the effect of not only kind of placing that kind of old, clunky, uncaring, industrial version of the tar sands into the past, 
but it also connects to the future and to the community via a kind of two-part vision for the future. Social prosperity for the region, for the country, it is the economic engine of Canada after all, can flower out of this ugly industrial past and the sweaty impermanent labor that is tied to it. Technologically knowledge-rich understanding of the environment, uh, environmental effects and reclamation of oil extraction can be transformed into a prosperous future if we would only trust that. But this also takes specific form for the local community, and I think this is a really important piece of the story. Local industry and community leaders are fond of pointing out the unprecedented concentration of environmental and other professional expertise that is required by the oil sands, and how this bodes well for the future of this place. Um, one industry executive uh, put it this way, we have this internal army of environmental activists inside the company working to make us better. For anybody who cares about community building and making sure resource development has the right spin-off benefits, man, there's a lot that can be done here. Another executive pointed to how that kind of expertise and commitment, um, that kind of social capital represented all at once by professional values and high-tech environmental know-how, was a great building block for the community of Fort McMurray and its vision for being a green global city of the future. So very quickly, this is the city narrative um, of, uh, of, uh, of the kind of environmental past and future. Um, the vision of its uh, current leadership uh, is of oil's globality with its dirty industrial past being repurposed for the social view future via environmental knowledge. Um, so it has a vision of moving from it's become one of the first cities in Canada to ban plastic bags a few years ago. Two, at the bottom, is the current vision for what Fort McMurray will become um, in, in over the next um, decade or two. Um, so as one city administrator pointed, pointed to the oil sands as a last vestige of the industrial age, um, but one that could and should be converted into something better. The story goes something like, we would be fools not to make the most of and capitalize, right, on this gift that is this resource. So the city is now spending billions of dollars to develop a city uh, that is not only looks like this, but is as green as green can be, with state-of-the-art recycling, um, uh, biofuels, net-zero facilities that will attract a diverse business and arts sector. And as with the industrial version, there is a kind of occlusion of, the, of, the, of workers. Um, one of the first places to be closed down downtown uh, as part of the city's buyout and, and rebuilding of the city was the oil can, which was the working man's bar, right, um, in, in the middle of, of Fort McMurray. Um, the oil can, I miss the oil can too. Um, so one, one city administrator called this the dirty little mining town, right? Uh, and uh, that this uh, new vision is, is to replace that dirty little mining town. So oil and community are sutured together here not only because the former is the latter's bread and butter, as I was often reminded, uh, but through the articulation of these two environmental histories, that dirty oil as always being narrated into the industrial past and of an economically and socially sustainable future built out of that past. This requires certain kinds of labor, as I've suggested, so I'll just leave you with a sense of what some of those kinds of labor are. There's a kind of labor from that internal army of environmentalists, um, as I suggested, who symbolize in this industry's ongoing concern to know uh, and the possibility of the community's future. 
this includes also um, an internal army environmentalist hired by local Aboriginal communities, which I'm happy to, to talk about later if you'd like. Um, from local community uh, boosters and citizens and advocates um, who point to, for example, Sincrude's bison paddock uh, to say, see, they really are doing something. The local tourism director who suggested that this wasn't enough, so maybe we need to have tourists who come to see the oil sands actually plant a tree uh, to kind of become cathartic, right, to this vision of the transformation into a new future. So. We are all being deputized in this way as well within Alberta to be energy advocates, to get the real story out of this temporal shift right, in environmental histories. So as one speaker said once to a group in Port McMurray, people locally are stuck between you can't tear up the ground and let's tear this shit out of the ground, um, as perhaps we all are stuck in a way. Um, but buffering us from this impossibility are the people who labor away on pipelines, and refineries, and truck shifts, those who are not from here, in the case of Fort McMurray, and who may or may not make the most of capitalizing on this prosperity. Um, so there is also, along with this, uh, a great need for dissonance um, reduction on the part of all of these laborers. Uh, and I've uh, heard multiple stories of ways in which people have to deal with the dissonance reduction locally, but I also find it fans out in multiple ways um, in Alberta, for sure. Um, so I earlier referred to Black, uh, Black's work, um, and, and he points to how commodification of fossil fuels became the nature of, of a place as one chapter in its history. And I hope that I've shown how that might then, in this case, how that chapter uh, of commodification of fossil fuels uh, is being exchanged uh, in discursive and also materials ways for an imagined socially prosperous future that must um, trade on the commodification of nature and labor together in these new kind of socio-natural forms uh, that Swingadell and Hainan point to. Uh, so thank you very much. I look forward to the discussion with you. I'm a Métis. I'm from Treaty 6 territory in northwestern Saskatchewan, a place known as Pasquashagayan in Cree. That is, uh, was known as uh, Lac des Prairies uh, by the, the Métis voyageurs in the area in the 19th century and is now known as Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. It's a small community of Métis, Cree, and Euro-Canadians in the boreal forest near the border with Alberta on the southeastern edge of the Athabasca oil sands deposits. In the last number of years, the Alberta-based oil sands operations have been expanding toward my community, which has prompted me to investigate what this might mean for the future of my homeland. One result of these investigations is my film, Land of Oil and Water, uh, which examines the effects of oil sands development on Aboriginal communities in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, I brought a number of copies of the film uh, for free distribution here, and so uh, I'll, if you're interested, I ask you to, uh, to stop by on the way to the bar, just around the corner there. Um, there's uh, three boxes of, the, of uh, DVDs there, so please do stop and take one, bring it home, play it, um, distribute it widely, and play it to your classes. Um, if you find it useful, uh, I would ask that you also ask your librarians uh, at your university to order a copy. Uh, from uh, uh, landofoil.com and uh, I hope it's uh, of some use to tell these stories uh, in a different way than I'm able to do today. 
So I'll spend most of my time tonight talking about the situation in my hometown and in, in, in the area. But I'd like to begin this discussion a little further afield with a quotation from the Navajo poet Sherwin Bitsui that has haunted my thinking about oil and cultural identity for the last few months. Bitsui writes, when we are out of gas, a headache halos the roof, darkening the skin of everyone who has a full tank. This passage is remarkable for the way in which it diagnoses a particular racialized psychology of energy use, one that I think is implicit in much of the petroleum-fueled modern world that we live in. It suggests that in the colonial modern imagination, the very idea of race is linked to notions of energy expenditure, shortages, and superfluities. Written at the beginning of the Iraq War and during a time when the Bush Jr. government was trying to legalize oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, thus the title of the poem, Bitsui places petroleum at the center of the definition of we and they. It reveals an energy regime in the mode of exerting control over bodies. Energy use becomes a way of enforcing racialized identity and consolidating a sense of self and other in the modern West. I'm haunted by Bitsui's poem because it represents so well the ways in which colonial ideologies of the past are being recirculated today. For a long time, I have been struck by the fact that so many energy megaprojects around the globe are constructed on indigenous people's land. I'm convinced that this is not simply an accident of geology and geography. It has something to do with the ideology of energy use that Bitsui ventriloquizes in this poem. All those peoples who have not bought into an, the, the energy use practices of global capitalism are at risk of being overrun by a system that seeks an ever-expanding energy supply as a kind of divine right. In a world of finite and dwindling hydrocarbon supplies, it is easy to extrapolate what is coming. In fact, this process has already been unfolding for more than a century. In the summer of 1897, a group of laborers for the Geographical Survey of Canada began to drill for oil near Pelican Portage on the Athabasca River, not far from the tiny settlement of Waterways, which is now known as Fort McMurray, Alberta. The men were part of a federal government project of experimental boring that had been underway for several years in the region with the goal of tapping into the vast reserves of petroleum that even then were thought to be in the area. Before the snow fell that year, the Roughnecks found what they were looking for, but it was far more powerful than what they were expecting. The Pelican Portage blowout, as it came to be known, was a tremendous jet of uncontrolled natural gas that sent rocks and other material flying 50 or 60 feet into the air, causing the workers to flee. It became the region's first of many petroleum accidents. After an abortive attempt to cap the blowout the following year, it was abandoned by the Geographical Survey and it flowed unimpeded for the following 21 years. A natural gas expert visited the area in 1906 and declared that it was the biggest gas well on the face of the earth. Often, though not always, the plume of gas was on fire, as it is in this photo from 1912. As you can see, it was an extraordinary spectacle, visible from miles away and probably audible from great distances as well. This, of course, was of little concern to the politicians and bureaucrats in Ottawa who had initiated the experimental boring program. 
The only thing that Ottawa was worried about was what they called the wastage of all that gas spewing into the northwestern wilderness. There was considerable interest in what might be done with the energy if it could be harnessed and put to some commercial use. It's not surprising, I suppose, that there is very little information in the colonial record of what the local people of Pelican Portage thought about this sudden conflagration that had arrived in the, on the banks of their river after the men from the east had been drilling there. The only mention of these local people that I can find so far is an account uh, uh, compiled decades later by, by historian Thomas uh, Court that cr characterizes their responses like this. As the gas was lit from time to time, the area proved to be a favorite winter campsite for the local Indians and was the subject of great wonder. I imagine the Cree and Métis people of the area thought many different things about this geyser of flames that had erupted on their riverbank, but surely it seems likely that a reaction of great wonder was not their only or primary response. Similarly, I have a hard time believing that these Aboriginal people accepted the blowout as a fortunate source of light and warmth during the region's difficult winters. Can you picture them saying, hey, no need to cut firewood this year. We'll just move our teepees closer to this raging inferno of gas that the Canadian government has so generously provided for us. No. These Aboriginal people's actual responses are lost now unless something can still be found in the oral history of the community. And I'm planning to visit there again this summer and hope to find some evidence of that. But McCourt's characterization of these people does tell us a lot about the colonial attitudes toward energy development and indigenous people throughout the 20th century and on into the 21st. The idea that the Indians would simply accommodate themselves to a strange and potentially terrifying alteration of their land and would even express wonderment at it is a colonial ideology that persists to this day. There is still a sense that the Aboriginal people of the Athabasca region should just join in and warm themselves before the raging fire of petroleum development that has been unleashed from the depths of their land. The implication is that if they don't take advantage of this development, they're being hopelessly backwards, anti-modern. On the other hand, if they do decide to create some kind of relationship to the industrialization of their home, that relationship is still often characterized as naive wonderment. The brighter the flames burn, the darker it makes their skins seem. My work as it relates to the oil sands is to do what manifestly was not done in the case of the Pelican Portage blowout. I try to understand petroleum development from indigenous perspectives. I ask Aboriginal people what they really think of what's happening on their land, and in a more general sense, what they think of what we humans are doing to the earth today. I'm interested in indigenous critiques of petroleum-based modernity, and I'm often inspired by the examples that indigenous uh, uh, stories and philosophies present as potential ways of addressing the contemporary crisis that we've been talking about this evening. To me, our current environmental emergency is at base a cultural problem rather than a technological or even a political one. If we are to have a chance at avoiding ecological disaster, we need to affect a massive shift in the culture of energy use on a global level. In this process, I think we can learn some valuable things from cultures that have had a different relationship to energy and to the earth than the one that is currently in ascendancy. At the same time, unfortunately, and I guess predictably, those so-called traditional cult cultures are very often the ones that are most threatened by petromodernity. 
the communities around my hometown provide some very good examples of that. I don't have time here to go give an in-depth examination of their experience, but I encourage you to watch Land of Oil and Water to learn more about it. I'm proud of the work that we did on Land of Oil and Water, but I must admit that I found myself at a kind of impasse in my work after we finished the film. I knew it was important to give those Aboriginal community members an opportunity to tell the world their story. And they did that so eloquently and persuasively. Yet sometimes I also, one, I also worried that I was casting them in an all too familiar contemporary role as the indigenous people who are being steamrolled yet again by modernity. There's no getting around the fact that the story is depressing and that the Aboriginal people of my homeland don't come across as having much power to resist the economic and political um, uh, forces that are amassed on the side of oil sands development. The film could be seen as a classic narrative of colonial disempowerment, even though I really didn't intend that. Realizing this, I decided to change my approach to the problem of petroleum development in Aboriginal communities. Rather than following the motif of the environmental victim in my newer work, I chose to investigate how indigenous cultural traditions can provide ways of understanding and perhaps even reversing the ideologies that have led to the ascendancy of modern petroleum culture. Many different indigenous philosophies could be used as the, as the basis of such a project, but I have chosen to work with the Cree tradition because it's one of the two that I'm most familiar with and because the oil sands are in Cree territory. I've been fortunate to learn from several Cree storytellers and elders who have helped me to gain a better understanding of Cree philosophies. And I have to acknowledge a particular debt to a Mishkigo Cree elder, Louis Bird, who has been incredibly generous with his time. One element of Cree teachings that resonates for me in relation to the oil sands and other mining developments that are occurring in Cree territory is the concept of pastahoen, which Louis Bird translates as a blasphemous act or a sin against nature. He explains the idea of Pastahuin, uh, that the idea is closely connected to the importance of respect for the natural world. The way it was then, the teachings were about how to respect animals and all nature. There were rules about respecting nature and the environment, the animals and the birds. If one of those were broken by a, family, by, by a member of the family, a kid maybe, the punishment was a retraction of the benefits of nature. So in the Cree conception, nature itself creates the punishment for a pastaho by withholding its gifts, its bounty. And in a sense, the transgressor's relationship to nature and, and his or her ability to, to survive, uh, to provide for him or herself, is interrupted until that transgression is made public and is thereby atoned for. We might wish that the world of energy politics and corporate practices would operate in this way, with the perpetrators being punished by something that has a lot more teeth than the government's environmental regulations have. In a sense, though, I would argue that it is working this way. It's just that nature takes longer to respond to transgressions that occur on such an enormous scale. What we're seeing in the contemporary climate change crisis could be understood, uh, and, and Louis Bird uh, told me that this, this made sense to him, as a large-scale response by nature to global acts of pastahoen perpetrated by corporations, individuals, and governments in the contemporary world. And until the true nature of these transgressions is made public and is admitted to by the perpetrators, these damaging activities will continue to happen, and the disastrous consequences will continue to build up. 
A recurring theme in traditional Cree stories is the idea that you can't hide what you have done to nature. Pastahoen always re rebounds back against the transgressor eventually. Several of Louis Bird's favorite Wisagajak stories illustrate this theme by so showing us Wisagajak's greed and the ways in which that greed gets him into trouble. As a culture hero and trickster, Wisagajak embodies important traditional teachings, but he often does so by providing an example of what not to do. His greed and his disregard for the natural world can be seen as illustrations of Pastahoen. For example, in one of Louis Bird's stories, Wisagajak eventually manages to kill a bear, and he decides that he wants to eat the whole animal by himself. But eventually he gets full, and then he realizes there's still a lot more of the bear to eat. So he decides, I should squeeze myself between some trees so I can digest faster and then I can eat more. So the tamarack trees seem to oblige him by allowing him to squeeze his body between the trunks. But then he discovers that he's held fast. And the trees refuse to let him go. He's forced to watch a parade of other animals coming to eat the bear that he had wanted to have all to himself. Nature prevents him from having access to its bounties, and the trees hold him there until he's starving, until he's so skinny he can finally uh, fit uh, back through, through the branches. Louis Bird points out at the end of the story that Wasagajak teaches that you should live moderately and that you should not kill any animal that you cannot put away or preserve for use. And most importantly, I think for my purposes here, he goes on to say, most of all, you should not be too greedy because you will always lose out in the end. In a way, Wisagajak's stories point out the obvious, or at least things that should be obvious to anyone raised in the Cree culture. They teach us that we shouldn't be gluttonous or greedy, we shouldn't be selfish, we shouldn't commit pastahoen. Cree children would be taught all of these things repeatedly. But one of the most important things about Wisagajak's stories, I think, is that they provide new ways of thinking about our failure to act in accordance with what we know. Even Wisagajak knows that he shouldn't be selfish and he shouldn't commit pastahoen, but he does it anyway. And there lies the crux of the teachings that are embedded in Wasagajak's stories. They are about the gap between knowledge and action. They remind us of the truths and lessons that we all know, but we still don't act upon. In the same way, my work on the oil sands, like most environmental activism, is about pointing out what is stunningly obvious, that all of us are closely implicated in an energy regime that is destroying our land, making people sick, and threatening to radically alter the future of life on this planet. Thanks to the important work of ecologists and climate scientists, we all know this to be true, yet for the most part, we don't act on that knowledge, or at least we're inconsistent in our actions. That gap between knowledge and action is one of the biggest challenges for the environmental movement, I think, in the coming decades. We need to find new ways of stating the obvious, new ways of expressing it, that will lead to collective action, rather than to an ideology of learned helplessness. And here is where Wisagajak thinking can be very helpful. By using humor as a means of connection, Wisagajak thinking gets us out of the lecturing mode that environmental activism all too often falls into. Lecturing the public doesn't really work as a rhetorical strategy uh, in this situation, partly because it suggests that the person doing the lecturing is somehow purer or holier than those in the audience. And so uh, people always like to point out um, hypocrisy of those speakers. Wisagajak's stories, on the other hand, are all about shared failure. 
There is no paragon figure who is able to always resist temptation, who always does the right thing. Instead, there is a laughable trickster God who serves as a reminder that we are as ridiculous as he when it comes to our own self-destructive activities. And laughing at ourselves has an interesting effect on our notions of responsibility. When you can laugh at your mistakes, to me, it doesn't mean that you're discounting them or not caring. I think it actually makes you more able to care because you can approach your failure in a way that is not debilitating. Rather than the failure making us feel isolated or atomized or secure in our denial that we can't really do anything about the problem, maybe a Wasagajak way of thinking can help us to see that our repeated failure connects us, makes us vulnerable and laughable, yes, but not in an isolating way at all. Maybe it's the first step in a movement toward thinking and acting collectively. So what does Wasagajak thinking look like in practice? I think it can take many forms, just like Wasagajak himself, but I'll provide two brief examples from my recent work to show how this figure has influenced my thinking. The first is a piece from a short story called An Athabasca Story, which follows a character named Elder Brother, who stumbles upon an oil sands mine while he is wandering in search of food and warmth. As you may know, Elder Brother is a pseudonym for Wasagajak himself, and so this story is essentially a modern version of the traditional pre-story. In the part of the story that I'm about to read, Elder Brother has been rudely turned away from the oil sands mine, and he decides that he will get revenge by stealing some of that magic dirt for himself. He wants to burn it until eventually the whole earth warms up, and then he won't have to suffer through winter anymore. Uh, a Canadian fantasy. <laughs> Instead of fleeing the empty land, Elder Brother began walking toward the place in the center where the largest of the yellow contraptions were tearing away at the earth. The snow had all been cleared away there, and he could see how black this magical dirt really was. He watched the beasts moving this way and that, and he waited for his opportunity. Finally, he saw an opening, and he darted between a couple of the great yellow mobile houses toward a spot where the ground had recently been opened. It looked softer there, and warmer too. Yes, this was the place. He lifted his right hand and thrust it as hard as he could, right down into the soil, up to his elbow. Aya, a voice said. What are you doing, elder brother? Shh, he whispered. I'm taking what's mine. And he reached deeper and deeper into the earth, spreading his fingers as wide as he could to hold the largest amount. A year's supply in one hand, he imagined. He reached so far that his cheek was resting against the redolent earth itself. He nearly gagged at the smell, but he didn't loosen his grip. He could already feel the warmth coming out of the soil, and it made him a little stronger. Elder brother, you're hurting me, the voice cried out. Not nearly so much as they are, he said. And with that, he began reaching in with his other arm, tunneling in with his fingers, opening his arms wide in a desperate embrace. His nose was raw with the fumes, and the particles of grit were getting in his mouth. He was about to heave the huge armload of dirt out right then and there and begin his run for the bush. But one thought stopped him. What if it wasn't enough? What if he ran out? and then winter came back. So without another hesitation, he kicked off his moccasin and began tunneling in with the toes of his right foot. He clasped and clawed until he was more than thigh deep in the earth, and then he tilted his toes upward to hold as much as he could. Then quickly he kicked off his other moccasin and tunneled in with that foot, squirming and worming until that leg too was embedded in the earth. Ass deep and shoulder deep in the magical soil. 
Surely this would be enough to last him for decades until the winter had been vanquished for good. You are a genius, elder brother, he said to himself. You deserve all the warmth you're going to get. But when elder brother tried to lean back and lift that great clump of dirt out of its place, he discovered that he had no leverage. He pulled and pulled at the soil, flexing his arms and legs all at once, but nothing moved. The only thing that happened was his limbs seemed to sink a little deeper into the ground. He grunted and panted, flexed again, shimmied his buttocks for extra oomph, but it didn't make a bit of difference. Well, he thought, I guess I should just take a little less, maybe make two trips. I'll just wiggle my legs out of these holes and settle for a nice big armload of magic dirt. I imagine you can guess how that worked out. Right, it didn't. Elder brother was stuck fast in that Athabasca tar. He couldn't move a finger or a toe. So for now, I'll leave elder brother in his tar baby predicament, his skin darkened by the sticky bitumen of Athabasca's magical soil. All I've done here is take the traditional Cree character and place him in a newly altered landscape that has been a part of the Cree territory for thousands of years. I like to think that this shift brings the rhetorical strategies of Wasagajak thinking into a global context, showing how we are all like Elder Brother in our own ways. We are all tempted by the promise of that magical soil, and we are all dirtied by it, even if we try to tell ourselves otherwise. This is a different kind of darkening than what Sherwin Bitsui wrote about in his poem. It's not about racialized otherness and enforced inequalities. Instead, it's about being entangled in a system that leaves its nasty, sticky marks on all of us, no matter how far we are away from the ultimate source of the dirt. It's about laughing at our shared entanglement. My other foray into Wisagajak thinking takes the idea of shared entanglement in a different direction, away from the mythical world of Elder Brother and toward the lives of average Canadians. I've become fascinated by the image of dirty hands as a metaphor for the presence of the oil sands in our everyday lives. And I wrote an article about this called Tar Hands, a Messy Manifesto for Imri's wonderful Petrocultures Conference last fall. Inspired by early photographs of oil sands scientists pictured with Athabasca tar on their hands, such as this image uh, from the 1940s, I've started to think about how photographs might be employed to do the work of Wisagajak in this symbolic space. The result is a series of still images I'm now creating that attempt to show how the culture of tar is leaving its marks all over the landscape and the people of the Great White North. The tarry hand is a Gothic figure to me, a symbol of what we have repressed about our modern relationship to the earth. It's a reminder of the near omnipresence of Pastahoen in the contemporary world, but of course, it's also absurd too. And I want to accentuate that absurdity in a way, as a way of showing how our shared failure to address the energy problems we have is something that unites us, something that might become the basis of future collective action. As part of this photography project, I've asked average Canadians to pose for portraits like this one with tar on their hands. In a, in a way to represent this other kind of darkening, the kind that affects everyone in the North American Energy Network, no matter what color their skin may be. I'm only at the beginning of this project, but already I've had enthusiastic response from many people who would like to take part as models. 
I've also asked some of my participants to model their favorite uh, activities for the portraits. And so here uh, is uh, one of the, the most uh, favorite Canadian pastimes, of course. And uh, we have our hockey player um, showing us his tar-filled gloves. And I'd just like to end with one last image of my hockey player that, uh, to me, encapsulates a Wasagajak perspective on the new Canada in the age of the tar sands. Belligerent, dirty-handed, unwilling to back down. I hope it's an image that Canadians can see themselves in and laugh. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Network in Canadian History and Environment, the Robart Centre for Canadian Studies, and Canada's History Magazine. This episode was made by Andrew Weaver, Warren Carew, Sarah Doro, Imri Saisman, Graham Wynn, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website at seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. To keep up with current work in the field of environmental history, I encourage listeners to download our iOS app, which works on iPhone, iPod Touch, and the iPad. You can get the app at niche-canada.org slash envhist, that's E-N-V-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening to this special series, and we'll return again in the fall with a brand new episode of Nature's Past. Hello. Thank you for sticking by uh, for this extra bonus content after the music. Uh, we just wanted to put a little bit in here at the end to thank you listeners for sticking with this special series on histories of Canadian environmental issues. And Andrew and Stacy and I wanted to give a special thanks to all of you. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. This has been a great opportunity and uh, a fun experience to, to uh, work more with the environmental history of Canada. Thanks, everyone. It's been real. For Thanks for listening, and thanks to Stacy and Sean for doing <laughs> such a great job with me. And it's been a lot of fun. I want to thank Stacy and Andrew especially for all the work they put into this series, making the uh, Nature's Past podcast even better than it's ever been. We'll be back again in September 2013 with all new episodes. And if you are interested in continuing following the adventures of Stacy Nation Knapper and Andrew Watson, you can follow them on Twitter. We'll have their Twitter, Twitter handles linked on our show notes page for this episode. Stay listening in the fall and have a good summer everybody